May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's just dive right in. Do you remember the book of Jeremiah? If you do, and for the record, it's very much okay if you don't, then you may remember, too, that Jeremiah had the profound experience of hearing God speak to him. He saw in an image from life a meaning that spoke to him about the ways of the Lord. The $5 word in psychology for this is abreaction which is defined as a moment when one's life suddenly connects with a much deeper universal truth through the means of an allegory. It often happens when people watch movies or read books, when they suddenly find themselves identifying with the characters. Perhaps this has happened to you at some point. The image that's so deeply connected with Jeremiah is just one example, literally among zillions. But let's consider it for just a moment. One day, he came upon a potter who was working on some clay. We read, So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled, so he was reworking it into another vessel as seemed good to him. In this story, we encounter two main elements. There is the potter, and then there is the clay. As you know, a potter works with clay. The clay is taken from the ground and used to create beautiful objects, objects which typically serve an important function. In this allegory, it is suggested to us that God is like the potter and that we are like the clay in his hands. It's an image that St. Paul found so compelling that he revisited and expounded upon it famously in the ninth chapter of his letter to the Romans. The thing about allegory, and by that I'm referring to poetic imagery in general, is that it breathes life into ideas. When it is used well, it facilitates and deepens understanding. Given that God is so endlessly vast and of an essence that is impossible to fully comprehend, the use of analogy is incredibly important because to a large extent, language is limited and the life of faith is about much more than just mental assertion and intellectualization. As far as I'm concerned, in fact, the key to enabling people to move beyond their brains, i.e., to their hearts is illustration. So I'm talking about analogies, metaphors, parables, illustrations, allegories, even similes. In my opinion, one can find no better use of these various mediums than in the Bible. Jesus himself was the great master of all time at this, and his use of parables is indistinguishable from his teachings about God. How many times do we find in the Gospels verses like Luke 13, 18, where we are told, He said, therefore, 
What is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? Matthew makes this point abundantly clear when he writes, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. If you peruse Christ's parables, as I did quickly in preparing this sermon, one discovers Jesus comparing the reality of God's kingdom to family life, to courts, farms, agrarian and horticultural imagery galore, including grain, wheat, seeds, trees, plants, crops, fruit, all kinds of different various flowers. He also mentions many animals, birds, fish, foxes, sheep, wolves, goats, all in talking to us about ourselves. All kinds of architecture is featured. There's royal governance. There's money in various forms of currency. There's wine and wineskins, doctors and patients, clothing, lamps, construction sites, banks, treasure, pearls, real estate venture, netting, baked goods, banquets, bridal parties, and a variety of other business ventures. Paul, too, is no stranger to the use of analogy. In his letters, we are called to think about runners and races and trophies, family inheritance and endowment, the construction of walls, armies and soldiers, children, and one of my favorite bits, thorns. There are mirrors juxtapositions of life and death, reminders about the stories of Abraham and Moses. There's fruit and tablets written on human hearts. There's marriage, pottery and earthen and gold vessels. There are branches and animal sacrifices. There are courtrooms and references to kidnapping, to the church being a body. There are veils, blindness, Scales falling from eyes and tents. Tons of laundry and bathing metaphors involving washing and water and cleansing. He too writes of seeds being sown and of harvesting, of lions and armor. And there's trash and refuse and citizenship and gifts and presents. You get the idea. What about James? The book of James is rife with this type of use of language. He appeals to the use of imagery as much as anyone in the whole Bible. Speaking about crowns and waves, about the wind and the sun, about plants and harvesting, about shadows and birth and fruit and mirrors, about Abraham and Rahab and Elijah, about bodies, about horses with bits in their mouths. He describes ships and rudders and forest fires and animals and poison, fresh and salt water coming from the same spring, battles, rotting money, moth-eaten clothing, rusty coins, and rain. In just the first letter of Peter, we hear about houses and refugees, about grass and military spoils. We find lambs and living stones and Noah and darkness and light. And let's not even get started on the book of Revelation. All this, I say, simply to underscore the fact that illustrations and allegories and parables are absolutely essential to making sense of the life of faith. 
as Greg Boyle puts it in his book, Tattoos on the Heart. We do well to look for moments that rhyme with the expansive heart of God. Moments that rhyme with the expansive heart of God. In my own ministry, I have become a collector of stories that illustrate the contours of the gospel and the shape of grace. They enthrall me to no end, and I think they are indispensable to preaching well. This past Christmas, for example, in trying to convey the profundity of the incarnation, I recounted one such tale. One of my friends, also he's a psychologist who works at the Veterans Hospital in Charleston, specializing in treating patients who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, mostly men and women who have spent time overseas in places like Afghanistan. Many of them have come home in very rough shape, often struggling with the ability to just leave their apartment, to integrate with people. One of the typical symptoms is extreme paranoia, constantly looking over one's shoulder type stuff, which usually results in severe agoraphobia. My friend uses a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that works remarkably well called exposure therapy. It involves exposing patients to the things they are afraid of through a slow series of progressive events. For most of these folks, it involves spending time around people, crowds, and strangers. They'll start by riding in an elevator, and then, for example, build to taking a trip to Walmart or something similar. One of the guys that my friend was working with was a vet who could barely leave his apartment when they began the treatment. After the gentleman had made substantial headway in their session, he agreed to attend a River Dogs baseball game at Joe Riley Stadium, just down the street from the parish I serve in. He would sit in the bleachers in the middle of the crowd full of strangers for a prolonged period of time and try to enjoy himself. It was a big deal. When that day arrived, he went up and nervously bought a ticket. He made it to his seat and sat down just as the game was beginning. All was going well, but then something horrible happened. The heavens opened and it started to rain. It started to pour and everybody climbed up out of the bleachers and they all ran to the top of the steps where they huddled together like sardines under an outstretched awning to stay dry. But this poor guy, he looked up and saw everybody squishing together and it was just too much. He couldn't do it. And so he sat there in the rain, getting drenched instead. Now here's the crazy part. Bill Murray, famous actor, you're all probably familiar with him, probably the most well-loved celebrity across the board that there is just about. Well, he happens to be a resident in Charleston and part owner of the River Dogs. And he was there that night. And Bill Murray looked down from his box and he saw this fellow sitting in the rain alone in the bleachers getting drenched. And then Bill Murray did an amazing thing. He went down in the middle of the rainstorm and he sat down next to the guy 
And he said, what's going on? And the guy completely opened up. He said, I'm here, I'm a veteran, I can't go up there, PTSD, oh my gosh, you're Bill Murray, Afghanistan, etc. As the guy tells it, it was the best moment of his life. And Bill Murray saw to it that he got season tickets and said, why don't you watch the next game from up in my box? And he befriended him. This is the kind of love that the gospel speaks of. The God of the universe is not just an all-powerful and uh, likable entity, but that he actually likes you. And he has come down to engage with you there, like Bill Murray in effect, but even better, as a friend who is committed to seeing you through. Another example came to me recently in a premarital counseling session. I was thinking at that time about the theology of the cross and what it means for God to be a redeemer of suffering, one who can bring forth good things from bad things. So in walks this lovely, young, excited, exuberant couple. And we sat down and began our conversation. I asked them about their relationship and how they had met. And then the groom told me their story. They'd met at a wedding, hit it off well. They'd been on two dates. Things were going swimmingly. And then one day, just a month into their uh, earliest period of courtship, he had a seizure while driving. And he totaled his car. And he broke his back. And when he came to, in the hospital, this girl was sitting there. And he said, I know it sounds crazy, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I knew at that moment I had met my wife. And there's just a small instance of a portrait of the theology of the cross, how a bad thing can in fact, in God's world, sometimes turn out to be a good thing or a thing that is in the midst of being redeemed. I thought, wow, that's so profound. That's the theology of the cross. A few years ago, just before Christmas, I received a very generous gift certificate to a local high-end department store in Charleston. And the man who gave it to me was a member of my congregation and also the owner of the store. About two weeks after I received it, I went into his store to make use of it. He met me at the entrance. I proceeded to select a lovely sports coat, one which I could wear both in professional and social settings, plus a nice dress shirt and some fancy loafers. I made sure to look at each of the price tags on the sly as he showed me different items that he thought would suit me well. In my head, I spent much of my time doing some calculations. My plan was to overshoot the gift certificate enough to be able to show that I was wanting to put a bit of cash back in the store's register, thereby showing my gratitude for the generosity. I had been shown, and also uh, I wanted to show that I supported his shop and his work. But when I got to the register, he proceeded to tally up the totals. I pulled my wallet out and put it on the counter. I got my card out. 
but he turned to face me. He placed the gift certificate down in front of me, and he said, it looks like you've only spent a little more than half of your credit with me. I was mortified. In that moment, I realized that he had been only charging me half of the ticket price. It meant that I was still in his debt. And the feeling accompanying this realization was quite uncomfortable. I knew it had to be done and explained the entire situation to Deirdre upon my return home. She agreed to accompany me back to the store in a few weeks' time where she would help me to spend the rest of the credit by finding some new clothes for herself. We agreed that we would spend well over the remaining amount in a further attempt to show our appreciation. So we did just that. After a little shopping, we approached the counter as a unified front and with a veritable armload of wares that we wished to acquire. I handed our friend the gift certificate. He took the gift certificate in hand and then began entering the purchases into the register, bagging them up one at a time as he went along. Finally, when the bags were full and everything had been rung up, he turned to us with a look of seeming amazement on his face. You're not going to believe this, he said, but I've rung everything up and the total comes to exactly zero. We were horrified. (laughs) And we protested. That can't be right. The total should be well above what was left on the store credit. Then he got serious and said, I don't think you understand how this gift certificate works. No matter what you throw at it, the total will always come up reading zero. It was in that moment that we first understood the true nature of our situation, which for us had to be spelled out. In our attempts to buy our way out of the debt, we had completely missed out on seeing the value of the credit, of the gift, which this generous man took such pleasure in bestowing upon us. There were no words. And are you wondering if he gave me another comparable gift certificate again for Christmas the following year? The work of Christ's cross for you and for me carries with it the inescapable reckoning of God's peace with the world. It's trustworthy and unwavering. It's an everlasting promise to the world that no matter what you throw at this thing, the balance will always come up reading zero. A fellow priest said to me once, but that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ died to save sinners is the gospel. We shouldn't cheapen our proclamation. I didn't say anything much at the time, but I wondered to myself, so is the parable of the prodigal son not the gospel too? Of course, stories of grace are not identical to God's work on the cross. But they deepen our understanding in a way that brings God's world into better focus. They are the tip of the enormous iceberg that lurks just beneath the surface and that pokes through from time to time amid the various and sundry changes of the world.
Amen.